When you think of travel to Canada, what do you think of? I'm guessing most people think about beautiful nature and scenery, ice hockey, maple syrup, and maybe the extreme Canadian politeness that we're so famous for. But these aspects are just a very small piece of Canada's cultural identity and tourism identity. Canada has a long, rich, and diverse history that was shaped by the people who were here first, Canada's First Nations. Today, we're unpacking why Indigenous history, tradition, and practice has been missing from Canadian tourism, why and how it should shape more of the travel industry in Canada, and what we can learn from Indigenous practices when it comes to responsible tourism. Here to discuss is Keith Henry, who is a leader in Indigenous tourism across the country, as well as internationally. He is a Métis person born in Thompson, Manitoba, raised in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, and currently Keith is the president and CEO of the Indigenous Tourism Association of Canada. Okay, if this is the first time you've listened to Alpaca My Bags, you've got an entire season to go through. But if this is the first time, please make sure that you hit the follow button right now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app, because we have one more episode this season and you don't want to miss what's coming next. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. We're at Alpaca My Bags Pod. You can also DM us or even email us anytime. All of our contact info is in the show notes. Well, Katie, I think it's time we talk a little bit about Airbnb. Oh, God. Yeah, I think it's time. So I don't know if you noticed, but in the fall, a new hashtag started trending across basically like all the social apps, and it was hashtag Airbnb bust. And this arose because someone shared a screenshot of a host ranting in a private Facebook group that's for Airbnb hosts. And they were ranting about how their bookings had dropped significantly. Okay. And then in the thread, there were all these other hosts saying, yeah, the same has happened for me. And this led to all this uproar, which had already started, to be fair. I've seen plenty of it on TikTok. All this uproar about the fees involved with Airbnb. So when you book with Airbnb, I'm sure anyone who's listening to this podcast and has booked at Airbnb knows the price you end up paying is never what you think it's going to be. It's no. always significantly more, which is very frustrating. It's at least, usually, it's at least an entire extra day's worth of money. Exactly. And the fees, rightly so, people really question these fees. So for example, the cleaning fee can be quite extreme. And people take issue with this, especially depending on where you are in the world, because many hosts will be hiring labor for criminally cheap to go in and do this cleaning. And yet they're charging so much money to the actual renter. Yeah. And there's just like other odd things that have happened. Like, for example, when I rented an Airbnb to work out of in Mexico, I had debated hard whether or not I was going to go with Airbnb or not. And the reason just to justify the reason I did it is because I needed to have a good kitchen because I have to cook for myself, especially when I'm traveling solo because of my food allergies. 
Anyways, when I rented this place, I showed up and the host told me that there was going to be an extra fee that I had to pay in cash to use the AC. (gasps) No, what? Yeah. And to be fair, like I don't use AC a lot of the time when I travel. So I didn't use it because I was like, I'm not paying this guy like for this. He didn't tell me that this was a fee anyways. So I just didn't use it. And it's not like it was a lot of money. It was just the fact that like there was no transparency about this. Yes. I was just talking to a friend today about two experiences that they had with Airbnb. One was they booked an Airbnb with a sauna, uh, a wood-burning sauna, and they got there and they had not been transparent about the fact that they had to bring their own wood for the sauna <laughs> to make it work. <laughs> they like booked it for the novelty of the sauna and then the same thing happened with they booked it for the novelty of a hot tub like a different airbnb which i always do i always book airbnbs with hot tubs that's like the only reason why i book airbnbs basically is for the hot tub they showed up to their airbnb and their hot tub had no water in it and they could not use the hot tub and they were not told this at all and then when they reached out to the the host they were like oh yeah the hot tub isn't available between this month and this month because of the winter. Uh, And they were like, well, could you at least tell us this? And they ended up getting a refund. But like, what the heck? Yeah. It's sneaky behavior. It's sneaky behavior. It is. I just think Airbnb is just not what it used to be. Because I think about the early days, it used to really be about like connecting with other people. Like Luke and I used to rent out a room in our apartment on Airbnb. This is part of how we made like travel accessible back in the day when we had very low paying jobs and could barely afford to travel. Our thing was that we would rent out the extra bedroom in our apartment and we would do it for a couple weeks every month to just make extra money to help us travel. And we actually loved doing it because people would come from all over the world. We had guests from Japan. We had guests from Brazil, like literally all over the world. And we always had such a great time with our guests. We would like hang out with them, cook dinner with them, give them recommendations. It was so fun. But I feel like that early essence of Airbnb just isn't what it's become anymore. Well, okay, so did we talk about the full-on chores that come with Airbnbs too? Because this is what makes me so mad these days now is that you will still get charged a cleaning fee, but also be given like a whole list of chores to do before you leave. And this is something that I saw in a recent TikTok where this woman was uh, expecting and was willing to pay a cleaning fee. And it was about $75, which I looked up as sort of the average of the cleaning fees on there. I've seen them for like $300. It's oh, wild. Totally. Yeah. Um, and still this Airbnb gave her like a list of please remove all of your bed sheets and start a load of laundry and wash all of the <sighs> dishes and do all these things. And listen, when I use an Airbnb, I always wash my dishes. I usually throw all my towels in the bathtub to let them know. And then I usually leave the bed unmade to let them know that I was sleeping in it. But I'm not going to undo the bed and like start a load of laundry. And like, let's be real. A lot of these places, their checkout times are like, 10 a.m. And so I've how early do I have to wake up to start my list of chores to then be kicked out of your place? Like I'm it, it just ugh, the audacity is getting way <laughs> too intense now. And I just I just like don't even know where to begin, let alone there's the entire conversation of just like Airbnb's impact on our housing crisis. Like ugh, it's just 
too damn much for me. Yeah. There's so many issues when it comes to like gentrification. <sighs> and also like labor is a big part of it. And it's also a question of like, who is running and operating these Airbnbs? Like, who are they benefiting? Are they benefiting like foreigners who move down to Mexico and buy up all the property and then like profit off of it? Like, these are the big issues for me. Mm-hmm. But it's tough. Like, in some situations, I do continue to use Airbnb just because like, Having a kitchen is so important to me when I'm traveling and hotels just are very expensive if you start getting hotel rooms that have kitchenettes. This is why I'm going back to like, I wasn't doing hostels for a while because of the pandemic mainly. But when Luke and I travel now, like we're doing private rooms and hostels again and using the kitchens because that's like one of the big draws for me of a hostel. I mean, the community kitchen is better than nothing (laughs) at this Mm -hmm. point. I was going to say one of the things that I've started doing is on Google Maps searching B&B because also this is a comment Mark made yesterday. What happened to the second B in Airbnb? No one's providing me breakfast at Airbnbs. So (laughs) this is a good point. It's a big scam. There's only a bed. And sometimes even the bed is sketchy. So it's like, listen, I'm Googling actual B&Bs, little small businesses. And usually those places have like little communal kitchens. Like sometimes they let you use their kitchen and they prep all the breakfast for you. But the one that we stayed at in Niagara Falls a couple years ago, they were like, oh yeah, throw any of your like leftovers from restaurants in the fridge. You can use our kitchen. We just use it between this time and this time. And it was very sweet. So actual small businesses where you don't have to pay all those fees and everything's just like tacked into the room rate, like That's the way to go for me right now. Okay, so this brings me to my hack that I do often, which is I will do research on Airbnb. And then when I find places that I think are a good fit, I look for clues in the listing and I use those clues to find them outside of Airbnb and I just message them directly. I do this for Hostel World as well. Like this is... a hack I don't know if people know this but like I'll look up hostels on hostel world and then email the hostel directly to book because then it's not going through this third party it's better for them it's better for me same with Airbnb Airbnb doesn't want this to happen though so like they try to hide the clues but you can there's always a way you can always find it that's why you can't send links through Airbnb and stuff like Mm -hmm. that or email addresses or phone numbers because they don't want you to be able to connect outside the platform I also used to work for a location scouting company that did a very similar style marketplace business like this so I knew (laughs) I knew all these hacks too because of course we did not want people communicating outside of the platform. But okay, Erin, tell me about what kind of clues you look for. Like put on your Benoit Blanc inspector glasses and (laughs) tell me like what are the clues that you look for in listings? Almost always the best clue is the name of the listing itself. Yes. So you know how they'll give like the listing a name? Yeah. It'll be called like something cabins. Okay. Like we did this in Belize. Like there was a place called like, I forget what it was called. It was called something cabins. That name was in the Airbnb listing. And reading it, you would think, oh, they've just like called it that for the sake of this listing. But we went and Googled it. And it turned out they had a website and you could email them directly. So you just copy paste the name of the listing into Google search. Not the full name of the listing, because usually the listings will say 
something cabins, great location, blah, blah, blah. Just look for the clues like related to the name. Hmm. Like use whatever they're calling the place. Yeah. This works for me almost all the time. Or you Google the name of the host. Or you just Google rental properties in the area and you cross-reference because the photos are That's what I was going to say. I was going to say that too. Like if something looks like somewhere where they would host multiple people or it's a business of some kind, like a cabin or a cottage or like there's multiple rooms there, then you can just literally Google that area and then cross-reference. Cross-reference. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But I would say like 88% of the time – putting in the name that they use to call themselves on Airbnb (laughs) finds them. (laughs) These are our secret hacks, but probably most people are doing it. I'm sure other people are doing this, but Uh, in case you're not, this is this is the way. Yes. (laughs) But also I'm a hostile person and the pandemic really ruined that for a while. But I'm just finding ways to like be safe in hostels. Like when we were in Belize, like a lot of the hostels we stayed in were open air. So it felt pretty safe anyways, because the kitchen was open air. We had a private room. So I'm pretty comfortable again with hostels. I won't do dorm rooms. I think I'm too old for that now. But yeah, private rooms and hostels all the way. I feel like that pretty much says it all other than there is a really great episode of a podcast called Calling Bullshit that is all about Airbnb and their sketchy practices. So I would definitely highly recommend taking a listen to that mm-hmm. podcast. Also, Paige McClanahan, who we've had on the show, she has written some great articles on the New York Times about Airbnb. So definitely look up her work if you want to read more about yeah, this. Yes, we can link those in the show notes. Definitely. Okay, shall we get into this conversation with Keith? Because it was such a good conversation. I'm so excited about it. Me too. Yeah, let's do it. Hi, Keith. Welcome to Alpaca My Bags. We're super excited to chat with you today because there's tons to learn from Indigenous communities and practices when it comes to responsible tourism. But before we dive in, I wanted to start by asking about your work at the Indigenous Tourism Association of Canada. Can you tell us a bit about your role there and the overall goals of the organization? Yeah, it's a pleasure being on the show, of course. Um, we're a national Indigenous tourism representative body. We uh, represent the interests of about 1,900 Indigenous-owned businesses from every part of this country. I have a national board, one Indigenous board member from every province and territory in this country. And of course, we have a management team. So I have the unique role of uh Building ITAC is sort of a hybrid between a traditional tourism marketing body, a lot of development pieces in addition to that, and also we do a lot of advocacy with our federal partners in Ottawa. Right. And on that note, we read that the Indigenous Tourism Association of Canada has just renewed a three-year agreement with Parks Canada, and this is a pretty significant headline for Canadian tourism. Just to lay some context, Parks Canada is the agency of the Government of Canada that manages the country's national parks, national marine conservation areas, national historic sites, and way more. For example, I've spent a lot of time in Point Pelee National Park in Ontario, 
It's the southernmost point of the Canadian mainland, and it's this huge chunk of land with a beach and camping and hiking and bike trails. Point Pelee is just one example of a natural area that falls under Parks Canada management. So I think it's really encouraging to see the partnership between Parks Canada and the Indigenous Tourism Association of Canada continue. Um, but could you talk a bit about the intent behind the partnership and what you're expecting to see as a result of the contract? Yeah, we have a, a very proud relationship with Parks Canada here. And, um, you know, there's significant tracts of land in this country that has been designated as federal parks locations, right? And they overlap and intersect with many Indigenous communities. The MOU itself is to continue building on some of our past work to actually help Indigenous tourism businesses either get created or enhanced that are within the parks lands areas. You know, whether it's in Haida Gwaii or in the Torngats Mountain with the base camp and a partnership with the Inuit community there, there's a number of these businesses that have been evolving that are Indigenous owned and operated. And we're trying to work with parks to how do we continue on that development side and on the marketing side? How can we work side by side with parks to really help the world understand that parks are also an amazing dis Indigenous destination and part and parcel of everything that Parks Canada has to offer and help the world explore. So I do think things are going to continue to increase substantially because of that. It's been a very important relationship, one of many in this country. Absolutely. You actually jogged my memory of a couple years ago, I was traveling in BC, and I took some logging roads down to see these hot springs. I can't remember exactly where, but it was like somewhat close to Whistler. And the hot springs were managed and operated by the Indigenous community that lived nearby. And I remember thinking like that that was so great and being surprised because in Ontario, I don't feel like you see as much of this in the parks. Just wondering if you have any thoughts on that. You know, Parks Canada is a very big organization and, and it's got many moving parts. So you're right. In some parts of the country... Parks Canada has very productive and constructive relationships with the local Indigenous community and people. You know, they've changed names to more Indigenous uh, terminologies, and they've really embraced that. Other parts of the country have some work to do, and I think that this MOU we've got with Parks Canada is to bring a more, uh, I guess, a more unified approach to how we help create feasible and sustainable Indigenous tourism experiences together and and really brings that we're hoping that it part of this relationship brings a consistency across the country that um it, it needs to be improved in our opinion in many parts of the country yeah for sure and actually that's something i i've noticed often when i travel in western canada versus ontario where i live full-time i even notice in the signage like when i drive around in bc and alberta like often you'll see the indigenous names on signs as well Whereas in Ontario, I don't feel like that's as done cohesively across the province. No, it, it, it's not. And, and it's a missed opportunity where it's not done because what is of interest to domestic and international visitors is learning about the original history and story of the lands. And parks is one of those areas where they do have tremendous signage. They've got the tools to, you know, include and they have, uh, you know, they have certain just supports they can do that. I would argue it's more accessible. So I think that it's a missed opportunity in any part of the country where we don't embrace place names. and Because what we want to do is create curiosity, right? We want visitors to go, oh, what does that mean? I didn't know anything about that. And that's typically the experience. You just talked about it, the reflections of BC and Alberta. 
I mean, that should be the experience across the country because so many people just don't know what they don't know. I agree. And it's so frustrating because it seems like such a simple thing to do that would be like so enriching and not just for Canadians. I think it's like incredibly important for Canadians to be learning this history, but like also for people visiting from abroad. Absolutely. You know, for Canadians, we talk about reconciliation and action and what are we, we live at a time in this country where we are reconciling our past or we're trying to. I would argue that one of the easier ways to do that is start bringing back place names. And really, it's just a matter of, of just perception and public support. And and it's it's not damaging anything. I know people kind of feel that the name they thought they knew for the last number of decades is, is the name. But the truth is, there's not a part of these lands in Canada that weren't named something else prior. Like, that's just a fact of, of Indigenous occupation across Turtle Island. So... I just think that we we should do this in a good way. It actually makes sense, and I think it supports reconciliation. On the international side, it's equally as as people want to understand. Like the the international world doesn't think of Canada as a major indigenous destination. I mean, we've done enough surveying to know that. But when they get here and they see it, it makes them very curious and they want to explore more. And so, I just think it's a win win for all of us, not just indigenous businesses and communities. Yeah, absolutely. We actually did an episode on the show about two years ago with Ryan McMahon. And we talked about how New Zealand has very much made Indigenous culture part of their tourism identity. And we just thought that was so incredible. And like, we're wondering why that hasn't happened so much so in Canada. Boy, that's a that touches a big button for (laughs) me too, because you're right. New Zealand has embraced the brand the that it's integral it's central to their tourism experience and when you think of New Zealand you think of Maori people automatically whereas in Canada it's fair to say that most international guests would probably think of Canada as RCMP maple syrup you know not necessarily an exclusively indigenous set of concepts so we are working with Destination Canada and others like Parks Canada to indigenize that thinking and I think we're going to get there but the difference, what it means for New Zealand is it it actually drives their tourism economy substantially where, you know, one in four visitors spend actually money in, in the cultural experiences. That's why they come there. Whereas in Canada, even those as great of businesses we have in parks and other parts of the country, it's only 2% of the spend. So uh, the demand is far higher than 2%, but we're, we haven't figured out as an industry or a country that there's a lot more opportunity here. To go back to talking about reconciliation in a bit more depth, I'm wondering what you think this partnership plays in the road to reconciliation. Like, how could it foster community and cultural understanding and learning between settler Canadians and Indigenous communities? This is a very important opportunity for parks and industry bodies like ITAC because there's about 300 First Nation communities that are resident within parks designated lands in this country. There's some other sort of uh, Inuit and some first and some Métis sort of uh, settlements and that scattered without through parks lands. And what I think this relationship needs to continue to evolve is how are we helping parks present their parks experiences? It's got to be a cornerstone of how we position parks. You know, right from their imagery to the experiences to you know we want we want visitors to have an understanding of the original inhabitants of the land regardless of which 
indigenous community they're from. And when we talk about tourism, I believe indigenous tourism is reconciliation in action, right? I mean, people aren't sure how to support reconciliation effectively. So th- the fact is parks can provide the platform where people can go experience, whether it's, you know, on the land, ecotourism, kayaking, learning together with elders, storytelling, artisan experiences. There's a ton of ways we see manifesting. But our challenge is we haven't, we don't see the marketing and the investment for development yet that we need to see to, to get those businesses to the next level. So in our mind, this MOU was important because we want to continue to help shape the pathway for parks and others to more effectively build those businesses in those areas. I like that you bring up marketing because I I work in marketing myself, so I think about this a lot. And something I think about a lot when it comes to tourism is a lot of people's travel decisions are shaped by marketing and they may not ever even realize that. And so I'm curious like what you think it would take through like marketing avenues to make people think more about like choosing indigenous tourism and choosing indigenous experiences when they're traveling in Canada. Well, I, I believe that marketing is absolutely critical to our challenge in, for indigenous tourism. We just did a uh, study with Leger on domestic insights within Saskatchewan and Atlantic Canada's four provinces. And the intention and the interest was about close to 90% of a consumer group of roughly 1,500 people. But the awareness and the knowledge was less than 25%. So we continue to see these kind of metrics where whether it's domestic or international, this country has yet to invest uh, strategically in a way to create the consumer's mindset. You're right. I mean, people are motivated. They don't even, they create a movie in their mind, as you say. And they don't even know what this movie is. Like they don't even understand that indigenous tourism might be elder storytelling or singing and dancing and maybe some artisan work, but it also could be going to an outdoor adventure and a, a completely fun activity to, you know, staying at an indigenous owned hotel with cultural themes. Like there's such a diversity of our businesses But the visitor, really, if you ask most visitors, and we are doing consumer research that shows they don't even know how to create the image in their mind. They don't know what the image is. So we as a country, including parks, including Destination Canada, including all of our marketing partners, you know, ask yourself how much money gets spent in Canada marketing domestically and internationally. And, and, you know, it's it's close to 400 million pre-pandemic and we're, we're getting back to those levels again. How much of that actually gets spent on marketing and, and tactically supporting awareness of Indigenous experiences? You know, it's less than 1%. So it's no surprise that 2% are spending the money on Indigenous experiences. We have to, if we want economic reconciliation as an industry, we have to tackle that that missed opportunity. Because it is, if we care what the consumers want, Indigenous tourism is very high and top of mind for many visitors. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, like, I actually am a travel blogger myself. So I write about travel a lot. I have a presence across like different social channels. And because I cover a lot of Canadian tourism, I often get asked by people and I I've started like trying to include Indigenous experiences in all of the guides that I write, which brings me to a question, like, what role do you think that bloggers and influencers and people who are part of that, like sort of influencer region of marketing like what can they do to support this mission the bloggers and all those social influencers are very important for us at at indigenous tourism and we want bloggers to recognize the tools they have you know we've got 
an inventory of images and B-roll and, and things that can really inspire the imagination uh, at indigenoustourism.ca. We've got a consumer platform that we've been investing and building for the last number of years at destinationindigenous.ca. We want bloggers and influencers to use our hashtags, whether it's original, original, as we, we build that new brand. Like those are things, are tools we need to inform that network of, and they're they're critically important for our overall marketing piece. So I think um, we continue to rely on that each year. We try and uh, invest in some of those activities, but the truth is, we continue to hope people come back to our platforms and realize how they can share and, and find the authentic experiences. And amplify. And I always tell people, like, even if you're not like a big influencer, even if you're just like sharing your personal travels, like using those hashtags and amplifying those experiences is still helpful. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> I'm president and CEO and I'm, I do my little bit here and there. And I cannot believe how many just people in my friendship network I've influenced to go pick an indigenous owned hotel versus another option because they felt they wanted to support indigenous uh, tourism experiences and part of that is hotels transportation accommodation food services you know unless i told them they wouldn't have known so that's why i personally know as uh, in my position here and with our marketing team how important those influencers are at all levels katie as you know travel for me doesn't always go according to plan Oh, I am well aware. Having made over 80 episodes of this podcast, I know that mishaps can happen when anyone travels. Absolutely. And when they do, you need travel insurance. And I couldn't recommend World Nomads more. One thing I love about World Nomads is that you're able to buy coverage for your trip anytime and anywhere. When I was traveling in Asia, I decided to extend my trip. I was able to buy a new World Nomads policy to cover the rest of my travels, even though I'd already left home. World Nomads provides coverage to more than 130 countries, and they offer coverage for solo travelers, couples, and families. All World Nomads policies include cover for trip cancellation, emergency medical expense, and baggage. Benefits limits, conditions, and exclusions apply. Be sure to read your policy wording. Learn more and get a quote at worldnomads.com. The link is in our show notes. So we've actually noticed that some sectors are starting to look to Indigenous practices to learn how to do things in a more mindful way. For example, we recently noticed the Ontario-based architecture firm Two Row Architect is designing buildings with Indigenous values at the forefront. So when it comes to tourism, what role would you say that Indigenous communities and practices are currently playing in the industry? It might just be my own sense, but I feel as though they're underrepresented. Yeah, I think you're 100% correct in that. The industry may not understand, but the consumer is definitely becoming more and more acutely aware of. The fact is when COVID-19 hit the world as hard as it did over the last three years, it really, it looks like in our uh, from our research that consumers continue to, top of mind is we aren't living sustainably and this planet will not maintain the itself in terms of the environment and the way we think it would always stay because of the unsustainable things we're doing. And what I find is that we're hearing more and more from consumers. We want to 
come visit indigenous experiences because we want to learn from indigenous people. We want to understand their values. So maybe it'll give me a different world perspective. So we're hearing more and more of that uh, from Canadians and of course, visitors from abroad looking to come in. It definitely creates such a heightened sense of how important we as humans have value. So I really feel, I don't know where that's going to lead us over the next two, three years, but I, I think demand is, is going to continue to accelerate at a level we haven't ever seen before for Indigenous tourism in Canada. And like, it's hard, right? Because we talk about this, this on this show often that like tourism isn't particularly sustainable. We need like systemic change to make it sustainable. And that's, I guess, where I think like maybe turning to Indigenous communities and voices more could really lead us in the right direction for like finding the keys to that systemic change that we need so badly. I, I, I agree with you. I, I know tourism is always challenged because of, and our, our industry continues, like, you know, we, we hear about these sort of airplanes are now some of them in BC. We've now got Harbor Air now has electronic airplanes, uh, float planes going back and forth. So, so there are adjustments, but the truth is what I think tourism can do for, for indigenous peoples, help us share those values, help us as indigenous people, teach the world that wants to be taught about what it means to be sustainable and living within your territory and living within the resources and the means that you have. And so we do have a lot of experiences that offer those, those kind of adventures, storytelling, teachings. And that really has become, I think tourism can be a force of good in that regard. But the challenge will always be we have, we have to help the industry realize this race to economic metrics is not always the only factors we should be looking at. We in Indigenous tourism in Canada continue to try to bring to the forefront values of community well-being, social stability, cultural revitalization. So the rest of the industry needs to embrace that. And we have a ways to go to getting to those kind of sort of other sort of measures of success. So I'm also curious about your thoughts on how accessible Indigenous tourism experiences are across Canada right now. Do you think that like cultural experiences and opportunities for learning Indigenous stories and histories could be more at the forefront? Because I'm just thinking like even about my own experience here living in Toronto, like spending so much time in the city, I don't feel like it really is at the forefront of tourism, especially in the city. No, it's not. It depends. When I, when I think of accessibility, it depends on where you are and how the industry has developed in that area, right? And so we've got parts of this country where Indigenous tourism is extremely accessible. You know, our offices in Vancouver, we've got, and I have to say locally here, we've got some great experiences, right? I mean, Talisay Tours in Stanley Park is a guided walking tour. We've got Squatch Eyes Lodge, which is a boutique hotel downtown. You know, we've got, um, you know, a number of businesses uh, like Salmon and Bannock, nice boutique restaurant. The tourism industry here has really embraced and included Indigenous experiences. That's not the case across the country, right? In Toronto, there's a lot more potential. There's been some culinary businesses there and experiences in the past, but the industry hasn't really rallied behind it as, as effectively as I think it could. Um, I'm seeing things change now, but it's no different than Parks Canada. Like we, we at ITAC have to help continue to provide the, I guess, the arguments and rationale as to why these are really important investments uh, beyond the social license issues and, and political issues. So it's it just like I said, accessibility comes down to depending where you are, 
we do our best at Destination Indigenous to provide people to where really those market and export ready businesses are. And, and there's a lot more in the hopper, but it's uh, we've got a long ways to go. And I also think about accessibility in terms of like what tourists and also just local people are like physically able to access because I'm very privileged in that I have my mobility. I'm able to drive to parks outside of the city to enjoy nature. But then the lack of of experiences available in Toronto are frustrating because it's like not everyone has a car. Not everyone has the time to go and travel to a park. And so sometimes I wonder if like having more presence in the cities is just as important. It is. It is. It's definitely our anchor sort of um, um, businesses are there because what what we are continuing to try and figure out is and, and, and expand on is how can we take large urban centers and, and, you know, get some initial excitement and people exploring and then hopefully that'll, you know, motivate them to want to go out and, and explore Indigenous experiences because a lot of the businesses we have are in the rural, remote, the northern parts of the country that it does take a fair amount of transportation to get to them. And um, we do have a segment of visitors that really will go to great lengths to get anywhere to, to visit authentic experiences. But many Canadians need that convenience and understanding locally too. So it's always a, it's a bit of a, it's a really big challenge for us. We actually touched on this um, in a recent episode of ours. It was episode 86, where we talked with Paris Marx. And the entire episode was just about why Canada is so hard to get around in general, the lack of transportation that's available in some regions of the country. And they brought up the fact that Canada's lack of accessible transport infrastructure has also left Indigenous communities highly isolated. And when they're isolated like that, it's harder to even introduce tourism in that area. Well, that's exactly it. You know, I'll give you an example of one of many. None of it. There's many Indigenous Inuit operators trying to create businesses. But the truth is, even just getting flights in uh, that aren't already pre-booked with existing just community passengers going back and forth to the south like there's just very little room on many of those flights for additional passengers never mind the capacity for trying to create a business out of it and so we see those challenges it's the same with Yellowknife you know Yellowknife um, Air Canada and some of the carriers have reduced uh, flights to Yellowknife well that has absolutely had a massive devastating impact on some of our local indigenous operators at you know, Aurora Village, North Star Adventures, many others that that required those those visitors to get on those airplanes to get to Yellowknife. Just simply, there's not the capacity anymore, and so these are very, very large challenges. And it is disproportionately affecting the ability for entrepreneurs and communities to create sustainable businesses. How do we approach tackling these issues? Like, does it make sense to approach them at the same time? Or do you think it's like we need to focus on certain issues like transportation infrastructure um, before tourism is introduced in those more remote areas? Well, the challenge I've got is that tourism's already been introduced to these areas and there's been a reduction post-development, right? So, so we are tackling these issues concurrently, like no different, like Parks is one of many partners we are trying to elevate the awareness of, you know, the challenges with developing Indigenous experiences in parks, lands. Same thing with the North. Like, the North has very big challenges for, you know, particularly transportation effectively in and out of the, whether it's Nunavut, Northwest Territories or the Yukon. And so, you know, we try and create partnerships with the airline companies and through those partnerships explain the challenges that they're creating often 
unaware of the impacts to our local Indigenous tourism businesses and, and the vision of other Indigenous communities that want to develop Indigenous experiences. So we're doing that concurrently, but it's, it's, a, it's a heavy load, to be quite frank. For sure. And I guess marketing also plays into this because I just think about like, if there are massive marketing campaigns showing Canadians that they can travel to Yellowknife and have these experiences, then perhaps that leads to more consumer demand on private entities like airlines to provide like the means to get to those experiences. Absolutely. We as an industry got to continue to address the capacity challenges collectively because as you said, you know, the Northwest Territories does a really good job with their uh, Northwest Territories tourism to really promote Northern Lights. And there's, a, you know, a, continues to be a very large audience of Canadians. And as international tourism reopens, I want to go there. But the capacity of challenges are real. And it's already had a devastating impact on this winter season so far. So we we do need, we, we need each other through these, whether it's, de- it's not just like a Destination Canada challenge, it's all the, the tourism partners and an Indigenous voice at that table, making sure they understand the impacts to all of us collectively. I think there's a real power in that. And I guess like there's also always the risk of like over-marketing and bringing too many people to place, which is also something we talk about often on this show. It's like sometimes it can backfire and you end up with an unsustainable amount of people in a destination, which I'm sure is like of special concern in more remote communities. It's a major concern to Indigenous tourism in general. Most of our businesses are not ever going to be able to be large tourism. Like we're not bringing busloads of people one after the other to uh, mass tourism concepts. Those days will never, we would never see that really supported in that way. We're a really small group, you know, independent traveler style businesses for the most part. And we really try and market exclusively in that regard to, you know, various platforms and, 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 and networks because we just aren't mass tourism and nor do we, uh, nor would I be in a position with communities and our businesses to support mass tourism because it's just not sustainable. So there's a big challenge in the future because as I said, the demand is extremely high and the, ability to access is is challenging, as you've pointed out. So I think these are going to continue to be, you know, can we solve these challenges into the future or not? Right now, we don't have the tools to do that. And I guess like, just thinking about the mass tourism point as well, when I think about mass tourism, like in my own experience of it, in some destinations around the world, like I don't find that it's very conducive to learning. And I feel like learning is such an important part of the Indigenous tourism experience. Yeah, this industry is often, when you look at traditional marketing, it's often the big, you know, the open skies, the beautiful sunsets, the water, the mountains, a lot of landscape, whereas Indigenous tourism is actually the people. It's the storytelling. It's that sitting together and learning together. So we're we're really trying to focus on that kind of messaging. Like what makes us special and unique is actually our people. We might have a beautiful hotel and some world-class cultural centers, but it's not the brick and mortar that that makes it special. It's the story you got, the teaching you got. And um, that is a very important piece of how we position and market. (music) 
So when people think about indigenous tourism, they probably think mostly about seeking out tours or experiences that are indigenous focused or led. But I wanted to ask if you think there's also a way that people can practice an indigenous mindset when it comes to travel. So that might guide them to travel in a more mindful way or a more sustainable way. I'm curious if you agree that this is a thing and what would you say that mindset looks like? Yeah, it, it's absolutely very important. And what we, what I believe is important is that we we encourage visitors to spend a bit of time learning about destination, understanding the perspective of sustainability while they're there. But particularly, especially with Indigenous culture, are they practicing themselves to support authentic Indigenous products and experiences? Did they go to the gift shop and buy a made-in-China Indigenous art piece? Because that's not helpful. What we need to do is help people. When you support local artists and a local community, you're leaving benefits back in a way that that is actually much more effective to supporting our local communities and economies and sustaining Indigenous people's livelihoods and, and their culture. So we want people to spend a bit more time in getting a little more awareness and not just, you know, running through gift shops and and doing a flyby at the totem poles in, in certain areas. Like we want them to really hopefully want to come explore and, and, and look for it, you know, authentically owned indigenous products and services, because that's the best way to leave benefits behind for local communities and cultures. For sure. I think like sometimes people might get caught up with the idea that like they need to seek out a museum or like a tour that's indigenous when really like you can have an impact just in the businesses that you choose to support when you're traveling around Canada. Absolutely. I mean, sure. There's a large audience that will want to go through museums or see an elder at some sort of cultural event. And, I, and we understand that and that's important. But I also would add people should think about where are they buying their, everyone buys things on their holidays. So what are they buying? Where's it from? Do they know what's actually uh, you know, there's benefits. Is this owned and operated by the communities or the artists? I mean, really understanding the importance of authenticity and Indigenous ownership is really important. So to shift gears a little bit, Indigenous communities in Canada have always had very deep and meaningful relationships with the land here. Um, so I'm wondering if you have tips for how settler Canadians or people visiting Canada can foster that same kind of deep relationship with nature when they're exploring around the country. It's It sounds so easy, but it's actually, you know, it's a mindset, right? And I would just say that many of our businesses now are are creating things like visitor pledges. And we don't have a national standard on this yet, but we have we see a lot of our our businesses are, you know, basically where the visitor commits it, they won't leave garbage behind. They'll pick up after themselves. They'll contribute to the sort of just basic characteristics of taking care of whatever you're you're bringing in and leaving with out of the, the community. And, and how is that contributing? You're not leaving non-recyclable goods behind, you know, all those sorts of practices that the community is not left figuring out how to deal with these, these materials and these challenges with, all sectors of their public services that they provide. So I think that it's important as an industry, we think about those those type of visitor declarations or pledges. And, you know, I think the act of itself of people just reading that and understanding about the impacts they may be having to just water treatment, sewage, garbage, things left behind. Those are, those in itself start changing the consciousness of visitors and their behaviors. And I think we're seeing that in some areas where Indigenous communities and businesses just, you have no choice but to sign, otherwise you won't be invited into their business. 
So, so I think that we as an industry should ask ourselves, what can we do in a positive, proactive way to, to introduce these kind of concepts to the larger scale sector? You know, you reminded me, I actually was traveling in Iceland earlier this year, and that's something I noticed all over Iceland. And they were in the bathrooms. They had um, reminders. It was like the 10 golden rules of how to treat nature with respect. So like they were in the bathroom stalls. You had no choice but to see it. And I saw it all across the country. And by the end of the trip, I had these rules like almost memorized because I had seen them so often. And I remember thinking like, that's such a clever way to get people to, to learn this. And, and I'm seeing more and more of our indigenous businesses also lead by those examples. And I would say that I would assume those, those teachings have stuck with you till today. And so that in itself, like tourism can be such a force for good as, as I said prior. And I think, those are the things as an industry we need to embrace, whether you're Indigenous or not. I mean, we, we can see the sustainability challenges growing, not becoming, not minimizing. So, I mean, those are things we're going to have to tackle because we know tourism is going to continue to rebound and travel and the world is becoming smaller. So these are things we can't take lightly. And this actually brings me to a question that I've noticed is being debated often in the travel and outdoor community. And that's the idea of visiting untouched places. Um, Bloggers and influencers sometimes use that language. And it seems to me that it has a bit of a colonial undertone because, I don't know, Indigenous communities have been here forever and know the land. And so is anywhere really undiscovered? I'm curious if this is a discussion that you've come across yourself and if you have any thoughts on it. Yeah, we see, yeah, I have with many, you know, whether it's economic development leaders or Indigenous entrepreneurs or, or nations themselves, you see a lot of that language in this industry, you know, describing an area where it's like they were the first ones to discover. And this was on, like, there was, there's been Indigenous people in every part of this land of this country and water uh, since time immemorial. So, it is a big challenge for us. That's why, you know, with parks and all these partners, we're trying to help them create an indigenous narrative because the narrative that is often perpetuated through those kind of storytelling platforms is vacant of indigenous values. And so it is a big issue in this industry. We love to tell stories about uh, iconic settlers and, and events that happened. And But the truth is the indigenous story was pre any of these. So, I mean, we just got to do... The challenge I have is that we have such a resistance. It's like passive aggressive behavior for some of the, you know, the partners that are out there because that's how they've sold that destination. So the challenge is how do we do that in a way that will encourage them to embrace the truth and the true history of that area? That's going to be our challenge going forward. Yeah. And I guess it kind of points to like how important, like even the simplest thing, like the language that we use when we talk about tourism factors into moving towards more indigenous focused tourism. No, absolutely. I mean, um, it's just all about owning our truth, accepting it. It's like, you know, it's like Canada going through residential school awareness and realizing what happened with the history, the true history. Those stories were in our communities for decades and people denied that history. Now, that bodies have been discovered, that story has become suddenly real for Canadians. But the truth is that story has been real for families for a hundred plus years. We either as a country embrace reconciliation and start just realizing there's an advantage to, to embracing our true history or we don't. And then if that happens and we stay mirrored as an industry on the tourism side and that, then we haven't achieved reconciliation. To me, that's one of, that's another aspect of this industry that we've, 
we've got to stop perpetuating this notion of this colonial history exclusively. We should embrace it because the world's interested in it, and we should be too. When I think about using those words like undiscovered and untouched as well, kind of like what you're saying, it feels like almost like it's erasure of the fact that Indigenous people have been here forever. Yeah, it's it's not feels like, it is erasure. It, it's, it's a matter of we're telling a narrative that just is simply not true. Like the nations use trade routes through every part of this land, the waterways. This continent was inhabited by hundreds of thousands of Indigenous people before colonial impacts. I mean, all across from coast to coast to coast. So we need to be practical about the history of that those people and, and understand the oral histories and just and embrace that. I think I, I keep saying as an industry, I'm, I'm shocked when people don't embrace it because it's actually tells a really great, we're not making this up. It's not disnifying the history of Canada. It's telling the truth. So I think there's an excitement and, and I think visitors would find that fascinating. And I think um, I, we hear that, we see that in some of the research we do with consumers. So we, it's just a matter of how can we get non-Indigenous partners to realize the power of that and, and how can we help them with connect with the communities in a way that they'll want to share those stories. Okay, so we talk a lot on this podcast about responsible tourism, and we've talked now about how there's so much to be learned from Indigenous communities about how responsible tourism can be approached. Um, so Keith, just as we wrap up, I wanted to ask what responsible tourism means to you, and if you have some responsible travel tips that people can take away from Indigenous practices. I guess I sort of have a concept of what I think responsible tourism means. And for, for Indigenous tourism, I think it means that if you're going to go into a destination in this country or we're going to market and promote Indigenous tourism, our, our tourism in general, we need to be responsible in making sure that we position Indigenous culture as paramount to any of those trip itineraries, marketing tactics, that, that it's part and parcel of the fabric of this country. So being responsible from an industry side is one side of it. And then responsible for the consumer is we want consumers to come explore, come learn, be patient, don't come with preconceived notions and or Hollywood stereotypes and learn. I mean, the, the Indigenous nations are many different cultures. It's not one. They're not homogenous. There's great diversity of Indigenous people in this country and it's exciting and interesting. And so responsible on that side is just with that willingness to be open to come learn and then the other side of it is really find the authentic indigenous products and services and experiences that really leave the benefits behind so those are all contributing to the overall envelope of what i would call as responsible tourism could you share some of your favorite indigenous tourism destinations within canada maybe to to inspire a couple listeners yeah yeah it's always a it's always a <laughs> tough one because i for everyone, I don't acknowledge, but I will. I will say this: I definitely have a few. You know, I near Quebec City, the uh, Wendaki with the hotel, and they've got this beautiful uh, replica First Nations longhouse, and you can actually you can stay in a hotel. They got a beautiful cultural center and amazing culinary experiences there. But you can actually spend an evening there, and they do a bannock on a stick evening event. And I've done it uh, with my family. It's an amazing experience and it's something more urban that people can it's just outside of quebec city wendaki's you know like 25 minutes away you can easily get there and it's it's a it's beautiful hotels world class and the the replica first nations longhouse is world class another one i love going i love going to Haida Gwaii. i find that to be an amazing getaway they've just updated there's Haida house at talal they've got these amazing cabins they've put in place and they're right on the beach and i just find it very tranquil and just 
it's indigenous themed and they've got local activities if you want to immerse yourself or you can just kind of have a retreat and get away in some solitude. And I just find that is definitely another experience. I will say I, a life-changing one for me was uh, Torngat's base camp. I talked a little bit about that prior, but on the uh, northern Labrador side, it's I believe it's really the world's last true untouched safari. I mean, there's amazing wildlife and just polar bears and whales, and you're in this place where there's you know it's it's you're in the middle of Torngat's parks. It's just a, I, I can't explain it. I can't do justice in words, but it just being immersed in the culture and just having that experience and seeing how the Inuit people lived and this amazing set of activities. I just, I'll never forget that experience the rest of my life. And I think that that is, was a life changing experience for me. Oh, you've, you've just made me feel like, Oh, there's so much I need to see, especially in Northern Canada that I haven't gotten to yet. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're really, this is the best part of all these things is that we have some amazing experiences that are in sharing indigenous cultures. And I think, so many Canadians in the world are yet to realize. And I just, um, I hope people come learn because when I saw how they lived, for example, the Torngats, it really br- brings home why sustainability and respect for your environment and, and surviving in the environment are so important. And I think it, it teaches you. And it really does. And I'm Indigenous, but my community wasn't in that kind of harsh environment to that extent. And and, and it's beautiful. It, it was a, It's in a beautiful area. Like, it's just an amazing place to be. So I encourage people to, you know, these are all the kind of things like we have on DestinationIndigenous.ca, uh, our platform. And I think people, I just hope people come explore. I'm sure they will. And we will link Destination Indigenous in the show notes for everyone to find. Thanks for listening to the show, Alpaca Pals. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to share it with a fellow traveler and make sure you're following us on your favorite podcast app. And if you're feeling extra generous, you can leave us a five-star review or you can support us on Patreon. Anything you can do to support this show will help to foster meaningful change throughout the travel industry. Alpaca My Bags is written and hosted by me, Erin Hines, and it's produced and edited by Katie Lohr in Canada's Toronto area. If you want to reach out to us, check the show notes for all the info you need. I'll see you in two weeks, but in the meantime, I hope you get to alpaca your bags safely and soon.